Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. My guest today is Edward Glazer, the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics at Harvard University. Professor Glazer's research and writings take in a wide variety of topics in, politi in political economy, from why Americans are obese to the role of cities in economic growth. And I'd like to talk to you today about paternalism, the idea that some people know what's best for you or can judge your self-interest better than you can judge it yourself. Recently, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein have argued that given recent findings in behavioral economics, the interface between psychology and economics, even a libertarian should favor some form of government regulation that would be paternalistic in its nature. And you disagree, so tell us about that debate. Well, I think the starting point for this is is indeed behavioral economics, is indeed the recognition of the flaws uh, in human cognition and the flaws in our decision-making. And I think there's absolutely no question that we are a highly imperfect species. Uh, certainly, uh, from my own personal experience, I know I, I screw up all the time. Uh, but just recognizing the flaws in mankind is not uh, a justification for state action or paternalism. Uh, you know, Adam Smith, 230 years ago, was well aware of the flaws of mankind. Uh, his, you know, the case for laissez-faire, the sort of central insight of the wealth of nations, is the limits on government and the fact that government's interests are not necessarily aligned with those of people. And I think as one recognizes psychology, one recognizes the, sort of the flaws of humankind, the key question is, are the errors inherent in state decision-making going to be, you know, greater or lesser than the errors involved in individual decision-making. And I think the libertarian view is that the track record for state decision-making is not fantastic, um, that, you know, for, for any number of reasons, which hopefully we'll have a chance to talk over further. In fact, recognizing the flaws of human decision-making should make us less willing to let the state make our decisions for us, not more. Um, because we tend to we come to recognize how flawed you know state decision making is going to be. Well, Thaler and Sunstein in their uh, piece in the American Economic Review give an example. I don't find it very compelling. I know you don't either, but let, let me lay it out for our listeners. The idea would be uh, a cafeteria owner is trying to decide whether to put uh, the fruit first in the line or the ice cream, uh, and if. If you put the fruit first, evidently the claim is – I don't know if this is true, but let's assume it is true. If you put the fruit first, people take the fruit. They'll do what's good for them. But if you put the ice cream first, they just can't resist the temptation. They'll take the ice cream. And so a, a loving, kind uh, cafeteria owner who's looking out for, for the customer's well-being uh, would put the fruit first, and surely there's nothing wrong with that. And similarly – Government, when it has an opportunity, should steer us away from temptation and toward our own best interest. Is that a fair – do you think that's a fair description of what they're trying to argue? Well, I think it's one aspect of it. I mean, part of the problem is that it's not always clear what they're talking about in terms of soft paternalism. Particularly, I think Thaler tends to tends to move back and forth between uh, soft paternalism is practiced by firms and soft paternalism is practiced by businesses. Right. Define. No. Make the distinction right. so, uh, between so soft one, and hard paternalism. What is that? What are those terms? Well, the, the, so soft soft paternalism means you're not actually restricting choices. Uh, hard paternalism actually means we're actually imposing a tax. We're actually really changing your budget set in a way that classical economists would understand. We're telling we, you, you, you can't eat the ice cream or we're going to put a $10 gallon tax on ice cream. 
Soft paternalism is some question of changing, either changing what the default rules are or um, something like warning labels on cigarette packages, things that are not meant to actually change the, the hard reality on the ground, but change the way that you mentally approach the, the, the decision. Reminds me a little bit of state-run liquor stores in certain states. They're spartan, unattractive, and perhaps deliberately so. Uh, I don't think so. I think they're just poorly run. But, <laughs> I but, but I think you know you could argue that well, they're deliberately you know unattractive. The the whiskey is displayed in unattractive ways because after all, liquor is bad for you, and it's for your own good that we make it unattractive to to roam the shelves. Right. That that is certainly that that could be interpreted. Uh, although I, I I stand more closely with your interpretation of state-run liquor stores. That could be interpreted as one example of of soft paternalism. So there, there are a number of ways in which sort of they, they propose these these policies, and one set of it, which I think we should just get off the table to begin with, because libertarians have no problem with private soft paternalism in the sense if a firm hires workers and then wants to encourage them to exercise, you know, people are making decisions across firms. That's not, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, firms absolutely. do all sorts of crazy things with their workers to try and you know get them to act in certain ways. And they, they um, compete know. in offering attractive packages to, to attract workers who might want to be constrained if they so desire. Absolutely, right. And no libertarian in the world thinks that you you know you either should stop firms from being able to do that, or you know it isn't obvious to me whether or not firms should do more or less of it. Uh, you know, the, the normal economic view is, is that they're doing probably the right amount. Right. And in the same sense, you know, presumably restaurants also compete in offering healthy alternatives. I mean, the the, uh, the private cafeteria owners, you know, people really would like to be constrained by having the or would like to have the fruit offered first the private the the private firms will compete and will develop a reputation for healthy food so so that stuff is really not a type of soft paternalism that's controversial and we should really only focus our conver- our conversation i think on soft paternalism when the state does it absolutely good um, point and i guess there are uh, a couple of different uh versions of this so one of which is changing defaults and uh, you know, it's hard to. Uh, this differs in different ways, and sometimes, you know, the state there's going to be one default, right? And as long as the, as soon as there's one default, then we're in a debate about what the default should be. And and in that case, sort of changing the default doesn't feel to me like any more or less paternalism. So, you know, the state has to put one food first, and it's going to choose between ice cream and and uh, and fruit. I don't know that putting fruit is particularly more paternalistic than putting ice cream. Um, the, the question to me is more when the state actually increases the scope of its activities, uh, when it actually aggressively goes out and tries, as it, in the case of cigarettes, to you know make the product seem less attractive, to make people feel like they're less interested in buying it, to in some sense try and you know change people's minds about things. So we might have we might have a range between. The soft paternalism, which would be the warning label or a, a ban on attractive people in advertisements that have cigarettes, <laughs> right? Uh, any you know, a whole set of things like that, up to taxation, up to a total ban, and Absolutely. the latter would be hard paternalism. Absolutely, and you know, probably if you gave me my druthers, I'd prefer soft paternalism to hard paternalism. But there, there are good reasons to be suspicious about. Governmental soft paternalism when it significantly increases the scope of government activity, um, and I, you know, in this paper of mine that that uh, it's published in the Chicago Law Review, I go through a number of arguments about why I think you know soft paternalism is in fact a far from 
obviously benign strategy. That in okay. fact, libertarians should not necessarily embrace government warning labels on all sorts of things. But it sounds attractive because, after all, the warning label, you're free to ignore it. It seems you still have the freedom in that world to, to buy the cigarettes or the the alcohol. You know, It says on the alcohol label, it's, you shouldn't uh, drink this if you're pregnant or if you're operating uh, heavy equipment, which you know I do all the time, so I'm really glad it's there. You know, it just it's a big red flag for me. Uh, but but seriously, the claim would be that what's the big deal? Come on. So so they they're just providing this information that's good for you. You'll have it. You're free to use it or ignore it. So what? Why do you think that's um, that's dangerous? Well, I think we should start with the fact that it's it's not actually information per se, or at least the standard economic view of what information is has very little to do with cigarette warning labels, right? I mean, cigarette warning labels are not just, you know, providing people with sort of neutral information about things. It's, it's making you feel bad about uh, this consumption decision that you're, that you're making, and that's, that shows up in lots of cases like this, particularly sort of the more, the, the stronger that you want those warning labels to be, the skull and crossbones or the, uh, you know, damaged fetus, for example, on the, on the cigarette package. Those things are, you know, incredibly powerful emotional taxes in some sense on consumption. The whole point of it is you're making people feel bad about consuming the product. And in some sense, classic economics guides us to the idea that, that a tax without revenues is probably a bad thing. Right? So you're making people feel bad about consuming the product, and the government isn't actually getting anything from it. I mean, there's no actually offsetting tax. So the starting point is you're, you know, you're making people feel bad about smoking or eating or what have you. Um, you're lowering their, you know, utility from consumption, and you know, you, you ain't getting any offsetting taxes the way you would be in a standard uh, hard paternalism case. That, that argument is simply then that that a tax, a, a formal government tax, is more efficient. In, than a um, uh, the use of stigma because it generates tax revenue. The government can do something productive, presumably, with it. But well, you don't. You also don't believe that the that the warning label itself is a good idea, even as a. It's not just on efficiency grounds. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the 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 second uh, argument that I have against. Um, Soft paternalism is that soft paternalism can cause bad decisions just as easily as hard, as hard paternalism can, right? I mean, the, the sort of starting point for paternalism is that the government makes better decisions than private individuals do. Just accepting that private individuals screw up uh, doesn't mean that, you know, the government is any, any more perfect. Um, you know, governments are themselves decided by voters, and there are lots of reasons to believe that voters make a better decision when about things that they do regularly, about decisions that are simple, like you know, deciding what razor to buy or deciding what ice cream to buy. Those decisions are a heck of a lot easier than going into a voting booth and deciding something. And it's hard to think of an area of human decision-making that seems to me at least to be more fraught with confusion and error than political decisions. Um, you know, the extent to which... The, the historical record is full of people, you know, believing nonsense, voting on nonsense, voting in, you know, for enormously self-destructive things. I mean, just think of sort of, you know, Weimar and an overwhelming majority of German citizens voting for either the Nazis or the communists, right? This is, you know, this is not necessarily a great track record uh, for decision-making in the voting booth. And that's not something traditional economics is uncomfortable with. After all, in, in a voting decision, you don't have the incentive to get it right. It's both a hard decision and a decision that rolls together lots of different things. Um, and it's one in which there are actors, the, the politicians, the parties, the 501c3s, that are strongly incentivized to, you know, to get you to make the wrong decision, just as, just as you know, incentivized as cigarette companies are. Um, and, uh, you know, once you've got this, this view that, 
you know, public decision making is certainly no guarantee for error-free decision making, then allowing a government to, you know, interfere with decision making through soft or hard paternalism as either possibility, you know, has, has equal possibility for error. So you're saying that even though people believe and sometimes uh, profess uh, stupid ideas, uh, most of those ideas are that we profess that are that are foolish, say a belief in astrology, to take an example, many of our listeners may may be comfortable with calling foolish. Maybe some won't be, but a belief in astrology usually doesn't have very harmful consequences. It may give you people pleasure, so they we see astrology columns in newspapers. Uh, if you buy a car that is unfit for you, if you have a family of of five children and you and you buy a compact car, you find out pretty quickly that you made a mistake and you adjust accordingly. We understand people make mistakes when they buy their cars. But voting, voting has very little feedback involved in the decision. If you make a bad vote or a good vote, your vote counts so little. Your incentive, therefore, to acquire the information to make a wise choice is so small. Wouldn't we expect people to make bad voting decisions? Absolutely. And you find evidence of extraordinary ignorance, don't you? And in, in, uh, uh, as does my colleague uh, Brian Kaplan here, of people being misinformed and ill-informed. Uh, give us a couple examples of those. Well, uh, you know, you can choose you can choose any side of the the political uh, aisle on this, right? So if you um, you know if you if you want to take the uh, the the uh, sort of um, on, on the right wing side, um, you can look at the the share of people who believe that um, who, who doubt that Arab terrorists destroyed the World Trade Center. Now, Americans are pretty much sure that Arab terrorists had something to do with blowing up the, uh, the World Trade Center. Only seven percent of Americans don't believe that Arab, Arab terrorists destroyed the World Trade Center. Um, by contrast, eighty nine percent of Kuwaitis believe that Arab terrorists did not blow up uh, the World Trade Center. Um, you know, throughout the Middle East, there's sort of a vast uh, number of people that believe, in fact, that, that Mossad or other groups actually were involved in destroying the World Trade Center. Now, your approach to that tragedy is wildly different, obviously, depending upon uh, what you what you believe. Um, within the within the U.S., uh, there is a wide difference in regions in the extent to which people believe that Saddam Hussein was involved in in the World Trade Center. Uh, bombings. That's that's you know upwards of fifty percent in in some regions of the country and and below forty percent in in others. Uh, again, sort of a um, you know a factual question. I'm not sure that we know entirely what the right answer is, but a factual question and uh, uh, one in which there's clearly one of the, one of the two sides is wrong. Um, a third People's. case, which I think is absolutely fascinating, is the differences in beliefs about poverty and effort between the U.S. and Europe. So 60% of Americans believe that the poor are lazy. Only 26% of Europeans believe that the poor are lazy. By contrast, 60% of Europeans think that the poor are trapped in poverty, but only 29% of Americans share that opinion. Now, perhaps... They could both be right, uh, because <laughs> the differences between American poor people and European poor people or European economic uh, upward mobility in, in American, but I... But it, I don't think that's the main reason. It could reason. be right, but it, but it isn't. And it's, it's even easier to see in terms of the laziness than in the income mobility thing, right? The American poor work significantly harder than much of the European poor do. Mm-hmm. Right? It shouldn't surprise anyone who knows about differences in work hours between the U.S. and Europe. Right. But in fact, you know, if one if one group of the poor look lazy, it's not the American poor, it's, it's the European poor. Um, in terms of income mobility, uh, there's an ongoing debate about this, but I would certainly say that no one has really managed to to show that there's any significant increase in exiting the bottom quintile of
the U.S. income distribution. Uh, any increase in that within the U.S. than than within Europe. That the Europeans, um, you know, are are in fact slightly more likely to get out of poverty than the Americans do. So the fact that Americans believe that the poor aren't trapped, but Europeans do believe uh, that they're trapped, you know, again, that difference doesn't appear to be explained by by reality. I think a better explanation is what we're taught in schools, and and both sides are guilty of indoctrination here for understandable reasons. But the prevailing message of American schools to this to this day is that we live in a land of opportunity, that by working hard you can you can rise. And the prevailing message in Europe in the 20th century has been, you know, the Marxist message that class barriers are hard, that, you know, it all depends on where you're born into, that you can't do anything to leave your, leave your class. And these two educational systems have their effect and create wildly different beliefs, even though those beliefs don't have any connection with the economic reality. I like the statistic you give in your uh, article in Regulation Magazine about foreign aid versus uh, Medicare expenditure. Yes. Was it uh, 63% of respondents in 1998 in a Pew poll thought that the U.S. spends more on foreign aid than on Medicare? 63%. Uh, they're not close either. It's not like, well, you know, people no, would be misinformed. No, they're wildly different. Yeah. Medicare is billions and many-fold higher than, than foreign right. aid. Um, right. So what I, what the insight I like that you have here – so it isn't just that uh, – Governments, quote, make mistakes too, like people do, which is certainly true. Politicians are misinformed, certainly sometimes, like people are. There's really a much more sinister and, and frightening um, and dangerous issue when you give government the mandate to try to encourage people to, quote, do the right thing. And that is, is that government's incentive on that side is going to be manipulated by, I think, what you call belief suppliers. Talk about that for a minute, because I think that's what you're coming to just now. It's really a very important point. Right. I think that the sort of central lesson to me of psychology is that our beliefs are enormously manipulable, that we actually believe things most of the time because we've been told them, not because we've actually seen hard evidence on them. Obviously, a particularly strong example of this is, is the set of religious beliefs that we have, that you know, people have enormously strong beliefs about religious questions in which there is, you know, uh, shall we say, very little hard data. Um, and once you recognize that beliefs are formed by our friends, our neighbors, what we hear, what we read, um, it then puts a huge, uh, pl- suggests a huge role for the suppliers of belief, for entrepreneurs, be they uh, ministers, be they uh, politicians, be they just you know uh, friends out there to convince other friends, who then are actually the actors who help change people's beliefs. So. Um, you know, historically, uh, there have been this, this whole array of people who recognize that there are profits, opportunities, political strength to be gained by convincing people of things. Uh, this is the way I see this market working out, and this is why I think economics has so much to add to psychology, is that the only way that you understand a market is by thinking about the interaction between supply and demand, and only by sort of thinking about beliefs being formed by a supply by suppliers' beliefs and interacting with consumers. Um, can you actually make sense of the things that we believe? And in any sensible model like this, you come up with a view that you expect to see more errors when you have highly incentivized suppliers uh, interacting with unincentivized consumers. Now, in the case of buying ice cream or razor blades, consumers have a fairly strong incentive to get it right. 
Uh, you know, that it's not all that easy to convince guys that, you know, some crappy razor is, is incredibly good to use because, after all, you know, you have to put up with a crappy razor and you get instant feedback on it. In the case of politics, you both have strongly incentivized suppliers uh, who really want to capture government, who really want to um, win elections so that they can impose their own policies, at the same time interacting with citizens who, you know, really don't have strong incentives to figure out if we send more Medicaid or foreign aid. I mean, it's not like that knowledge is going to make some huge difference in terms of their everyday life. So why should they go out and undergo the pain and suffering of actually figuring out uh, where those dollars are being spent? And as a result, I think that the the policy world is one in which there's tremendous scope for error because of these suppliers, because you have these highly incentivized suppliers, you know, uh, pushing around the belief. I think things like the Medicaid foreign aid uh, case are one example, the, the case of the you know the the socialist teachers unions in Europe that took over the curriculum in the middle of the 20th century and convinced people that they lived in a class-bound society or another. Yeah, and and the point here I think is one one point is that we'd expect fruit growers to really encourage the consumption of fruit, perhaps well beyond any claim for health benefits that um, that would truly be in a person's self-interest. Having said that, I, I think it's important to note that. There's a certain um, puritanism here at work that is, um, even when it's well-intentioned, which I, which I find deeply offensive. I'm, I'm going to botch the Mencken quote, but it's uh, you know Mencken said something along the lines of, "Puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere is having a good time," and this idea that somehow ice cream, again just to come back to this example, uh, ice cream is somehow dangerous. Uh, and that you shouldn't be enjoying it or that you enjoy it too much is really a pernicious road. It, it certainly would encourage uh, people, uh, the government, if, if you accept this view, uh, discouraging uh, car travel, uh, air travel, skiing, uh, virtually everything. And, and I think the economic perspective here that's important to keep in mind is that everything is dangerous. Uh, it's the essence of, of the economic way of thinking. It's not a zero-one safe or not. It's a continuum, and we choose along that continuum to smoke, to ski, to take certain jobs, to take certain kinds of vacations based on information that we have about our own preferences that others do not have. It's a very Hayekian perspective to to be skeptical of the ability of the government, even if well-intentioned, even if not subject to these supply belief suppliers, that that knowledge is available to a central authority about those relative uh, desires and costs. Right. Right. And you have the existence of, you know, I mean, some groups are, you know, so the the fruit growers we think of as being sort of, you know, obviously narrowly, you know, self-interested promoting their own product. But you also have other interest groups that are, you know, basically well-meaning, but they're just so indoctrinated in the belief structure of their own, you know, profession that they end up thinking that their objectives are the only ones that count. I'm thinking mainly here about the the, the health industry, the medical yeah, industry. Great example. Which, you know, I, I've never met a doctor who really doesn't think that maximizing longevity is, is the goal or maximizing health is the goal. But obviously, it's not the goal, as you emphasize. We we make trade offs all the time on you know longevity versus other pleasures, and you know the sort of the sort of medical tendency to think that the objective is to maximize lifespan is, I think. You know, something that really does need to be tempered with the view that it's it's both quality and, and quantity of life that matters. Sure. A friend of mine uh, broke his leg in a motorcycle accident. And uh, by the way, I find motorcycles absolutely terrifying, and I hope my children uh, don't <laughs> ride them. But but he, his friend loved riding a motorcycle, and he went to the doctor to get his leg fixed. The doctor actually said to him, 
now look, I'm going to fix your leg, but only on the condition you promise you'll never get on a motorcycle again. And he said, what do you mean? I like riding a motorcycle. <laughs> it's a strange, it's a different worldview. Let's leave right. it at that. And you're right. They, they certainly, they lobby well-intentioned perhaps, but it, it's, um, it doesn't take in the full range of human activity. There, there is a potential issue, which I haven't quite figured out where exactly I stand on, which is there are, forget about sort of paternalism, there are externalities related to committing, committing suicide, right? Almost every person has a sort of web of personal networks that you, you cause a huge amount of pain to those people around you by killing, by killing yourself. And so I haven't quite decided whether or not I'm completely on board with sort of saying that every form of suicidal action should be unfettered by government intervention. But I think if you think about sort of things from this perspective and, and sort of you start with a view that basically people know what's good for yourself, then you're sort of ending up limiting yourself to thinking about the cases where there's really a huge impact on the probability of life associated with, with the action. Um, well, let me, let me talk about – let's talk about that. I want, let me give you a different perspective, although I'm certainly willing to cede to you. If, if you're only – Soft paternalism embrace is to is to discourage uh, suicide. I will probably uh, will probably be okay, but as uh, philosophical soulmates. But but think about the following. I think it's against the law to commit suicide, uh, or at least it is in some places. It, it is certainly, yeah. Uh, and per- presumably justified by this externality argument. You'd have to ask, what's the virtue of that? What's the effectiveness of that law? Um, a lot of these soft paternalistic arguments, even even if you could make the case that they are improvements, right? You've been making the argument that there are a lot of reasons to think that government will choose bad uh, examples, bad take bad paths, even if well intentioned in the paternalism uh, area. But suppose they took good paths. Suppose, you know, and I want to because I want to come to this issue of cigarettes, which 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 you concede and and many believe is is an example where government. Soft paternalism was, was was successful. One of the costs of even accepting these so-called good examples of soft paternalism is it crowds out private paternalism. It it crowds out social norms, uh, moralizing culture, and other methods that would spring to the fore in the absence of government uh, sanctions of these kinds. So when the government takes a large role in cigarettes, say, or in nutrition, which it, it has done for a while and I think is going to get worse at, it basically leaves the field very little room in the field for, for private efforts that are inherently going to be more competitive and presumably could produce and I believe would produce better outcomes than the government monopoly uh, on paternalism or essentially – not a monopoly literally, but their dominance in the field, their, their taking of, of funding for those sources away from private opportunities. I agree with that. And I think you know the case of obesity makes this really clear, right? I mean if we think about where the solutions for obesity are going to come from, it's going to come from the private market. It's going to come from the fact that you know Americans want to be thinner and there is a vast diet industry that caters to that. Um, there's a battle, obviously, because at the same time the diet industry has become more competitive. You also have a decrease in the time price of food, which I've at least argued is what lies behind uh, behind the rise in obesity. So it's not obvious which way technology will go in, in the short run. But I sort of have no have no doubt in the long run that the answer to this is not going to come from government uh, sanctions on what we eat or government soft paternalism, but it's going to come from 
you know, entrepreneurs like, you know, Atkins or Pritzker or Jenny Craig or whatever figuring out ways to, ways to solve this. So I completely agree with this. And I think it's also true that, you know, we have a millennia-long tradition of private entrepreneurs of social norms, you know, trying to figure out how to craft societies that people then can sort of voluntarily enter, enter in, voluntarily restraining themselves and sort of committing to, to living in a better way. I think that that's right. But I think also in terms of having, and let me come back to the suicide case, I, I think it is better in terms of having this argument in the public sphere to sort of accept that there's a you know, try and talk about what you think the objective is. What what would you know? What would any benevolent government paternalism program talk talk uh, about? And that at least you know show why so many of these journalism things would fail by any reasonable criteria. So I think it's sort of very hard to even come to the discussion if you don't accept that you know there are some circumstances in which you might it might not be the worst thing to have a soft paternalism thing towards you know uh, motorcycle helmets. But by the same by the same token, once you look at motorcycle helmets and you sort of say, "Oh boy, there there are really a lot of guys who die from this," uh, and I'm not particularly signing on off on a motorcycle helmet thing. I'm just trying to make the case of that versus ice cream, right? Ice cream has trivial mortality effects versus versus motorcycle helmets. If you think that sort of motorcycle helmets are close to the margin, then you can't possibly be in favor of regulating ice cream. Oh, I accept that as a, as a strategic point, but I think you make a nice point in your work on the slippery slope issue. That you know, even in these areas where quote most people would agree that that there's an argument here for soft paternalism, uh, and the argument here would be, for example, that ex post after the accident, most uh, motorcycle riders express regret. Obviously, they wish they'd worn a helmet after the accident. Uh, however, they do enjoy the the wind in the hair in their hair, so it, it is a, it is a little more complicated. But you also make the point that even in these cases where soft paternalism might seem attractive and practical grounds, it often leads to hard paternalism. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, I think we see this in, uh, in the case of cigarettes very, very strongly. Right. What started off as being minor intrusions gradually led to the demonizing of, of smoking and, and at this point in time widespread acceptance for, for very large taxes and massive quantity controls. Uh, no, it's, it's completely right. Uh, and... Um, well, let's talk about the empirical side here, because right now we've, up till now, we've been talking about the theory. We've been saying there'd be reasons on theoretical grounds, information grounds, incentive grounds, to be skeptical of government's ability to indulge in either soft or hard paternalism. But you give a nice uh, set of examples in your regulation paper of the actual track record. So it's easy to point to the so-called successes, the, the stigmatization of smoking, which perhaps I believe others believe has gone too far in terms of the actual coercive effects of, of taxation. But what, what other examples do we have of governments uh, indulging in soft paternalism in the United States well, or elsewhere? I think there are lots of, lots of examples where the government has taken on various you know, lifestyle issues, uh, often with pernicious effects. So, for example, um, there has been a, a centuries-old you know, government action First, sort of hard paternalism. Now we're debating about soft paternalism about uh, homosexuality, right? Um, so currently, the sort of debate about calling uh, gay unions marriage is a fundamentally a soft paternalism debate, right? We're not fundamentally talking about sort of traditional hard paternalism, which involved in you know locking homosexuals up, but we're talking about you know uh, something about sort of words about trying to send a message that we we like heterosexual uh, marriages more than we like homosexual marriages. Um, now, uh, you know, this is 
this sort of thing is the kind of thing that uh, opens up all the time when you have governmental paternalism, that you know, governments decide something that's a minority is something that's bad um, and decide that they want to you know, engage in some form of paternalism against, uh, against that action. I mean, I, I, I need not sort of you know, remind people of how much, say, for example, the Nazi regime was enormously fond of paternalistic uh, policy. No, please do remind our audience. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, little known. You know, the, it's uh, little known, and it's very which, important. You know, advocating for you know healthy exercise and the outdoors and various food-related uh, things. Right? Hitler was Hitler was a very big um, something of a food nut. He was a vegetarian uh, and and proselytized about its virtues. Absolutely. I mean, it's the, the the historical track record of paternalism does not suggest some sort of benign state that has always chosen things that clearly have very strong mortality effect. But you know, it's wandered a field into every form of human action, often with you know quite disturbing results. Right? I mean, the sort of vilification of homosexuals leads towards you know much worse actions. Um, and likewise, the you know, I mean, you can think about uh, you know. It, the, the sort of anti-Semitism is starting as some form of soft paternalism uh, against Jews and, and leading towards you know leading, leading towards the, the gas chambers. So I like the example you give of slavery in your regulation piece. We have an essay at the Library of Economics and Liberty by David Levy and Sandra Pert, and, and we'll put a link up to that essay. That essay explains that Thomas Carlyle called economics the dismal science not because it was boring or led to pessimism. But because economists actually believe that Africans and other so-called allegedly inferior groups such as Jews or the Irish, economists believe those folks were capable of running their own lives. But writers such as Carlyle, Dickens, Ruskin disagreed. They thought Africans and others were inferior, and they justified slavery and racism on paternalistic grounds as a way to help these allegedly inferior people from themselves as a, as a, as a paternalistic necessity. It's a very dangerous, pernicious slope to justify using coercive power as a way to help others whose self-control or reasonings deemed inadequate by the elite. The essence of sort of you know uh, soft paternalism often involves vilifying people who do you know who do these things. Often vilifies you know smokers as being irresponsible to themselves and, and harmful to others. Vilifies uh, gays. Vilifies you know people who aren't a member of the dominant religious group. Uh, and um you know this is a this is a, a very uh you know slippery slope and one that has led to a huge amount of you know human suffering and you know the it's an interesting example the externality issue uh which which i view as a uh, you know a theoretical nicety but somewhat dangerous in practice potentially very dangerous you know the smoking issue it wasn't just paternalism it wasn't just that oh well you're hurting yourself the the secondhand smoke issue allowed the state to say oh well you're free to choose your own, you know, poisons. But when you're starting to hurt others, we're going to regulate and uh, and coerce you accordingly. So, what that has led to, I believe, is is an overstatement of the effects of secondhand smoke by, by government uh, health agencies in trying to assess its dangers. Secondhand smoke may actually be dangerous, but it's not as dangerous as the government says it is. And so, this this so-called benign uh, provision of information often leads to more dangerous things. Absolutely, I, I agree completely with that, uh, and that's. I mean, it's also it also leads to an overstatement of the of the uh, actual personal health consequences of smoking, right? I mean, we all know Kip Fiscusi's work suggesting that uh, non-smokers think that smoking is actually more dangerous uh, than it than it is. Um, 
And that, I think that's totally right. I, I actually am more convinced by the in, in terms of smoking, which actually I'm not I'm not signing off on any of the any of the actions of smoking, but to take a more dangerous you know form of form of suicidal action. I'm more convinced on the externality, meaning just increasing your probability of, of death. Mm-hmm. But again, it's got to be really big before I can possibly see any excuse for for breaking what I think should be a very hard uh, line against having the state involved in this stuff. I want to come back to the remark you made about Kip Piscuzzi that. That that he has found and, and uh, he's found that people overestimate the dangers of smoking. I think the, the the defenders of soft paternalism would say, well, but that's a good thing. It's good to overestimate it. What, what's your reaction to that? Well, we go back again to the emotional tax. You know, it means certainly that the smokers who continue smoking bear this cost of thinking how awful it is for themselves over and over again as they uh, as they smoke. And the objective is not. To maximize lifespan, the objective is to maximize, you know, uh, you know, human hu- the size of the human choice set. Um, so, I mean, I I, um, I don't think, you know, I think I think that they're mistaken to think that this emotional tax without any offsetting government revenues is an obvious win. Uh, let's talk about um, some of the political lessons here. So, in most areas, you'd be uh, you'd be opposed to. To these kind of government interventions, um, campaigns, um, whatever you want to call these encouragements or uh, use of, of the framework of choice, giving people one kind of choice to uh, in before another in hopes that, that they'll make that choice rather than reordering that where they might make the wrong choice. Um, what do you think the um, – the hopes are for the political economy of these issues. You know, you mentioned earlier that that uh, we went down the slippery slope with with cigarette taxation, and and we started off by just discouraging, and then we led to stigmatization, and then uh, we're, we're now in a much different regulatory mode. Presumably, part of that regulatory mode uh, change, part of that change came from a change in the body politic, who perhaps influenced by the stigma sort of piled on and said, come on, let's really solve this problem. Um, what, do you, what do you think about ways that we can protect ourselves from government paternalism run amok? Right. I think one of the, one of the things that sort of is particularly dangerous at this point in time is sort of the traditional – well, let's not say traditional. Let's say in, sort of in, the, in the Goldwater-Reagan era – uh, the party that at least nominally stood for restrictions on government has been in power for a long time, which naturally makes it much less enthusiastic about restrictions on government. You've noticed that, yeah, me too. It's um, so I think that that sort of and we and as a result, there hasn't been the sort of thing that we had between gosh nineteen. 55 and 1985 of having a growing political movement oriented towards freedom. And it's hard to think of who is really sort of strongly speaking for you know the 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 liberty side of things in in today's political uh, spectrum. So that's one thing that uh, disturbs me. The second thing, which which is I think very interesting, has been a changing of power between industry groups and uh, sort of private social entrepreneurs. And you see this in, in the victory of the health lobby over the cigarette companies. I think if you looked at the world in 1950, the thought that, that a bunch of, a bunch of doctors and other health advocates were going to bring down big tobacco 
would have struck you as being absurd. You know, Big Tobacco was the one who actually knew how to form public opinion and protect their interests, uh, not the um, not the, the private entrepreneurs. This is a this is a phenomenon that isn't just l- limited to c- cigarettes. In, l- in context after context, I think of you know an area that's very close to my own research. The, the sea change in development, where we've essentially gone from a world in which people pretty much were able to do whatever they wanted with their property in 1960, uh, to a world in which almost every abutter, particularly on the on the coasts, uh, particularly in sort of the, the, the fancier areas, but pretty much every abutter feels like he has veto rights over every project. Now, this sea change in the... In the when you say abutter, you mean people... Neighbors. Live next to neighbors. People yeah. who live remotely in the neighborhood, Yeah. right? This has been accompanied by... a. a incredible reduction in the number of new permits that's not in any sense explained by a lack of land. It's been associated with vastly rising housing prices uh, that come from restrictions on supply. Um, This change has been accomplished in part because sort of the traditional developer's ability to, by hook or by crook, smooth things over with with the local city has been completely stopped by this combination of homeowners allying themselves with environmentalists. Uh, who have sort of created this this view that stopping development is an incredibly good thing for the world, presumably because it does something for you know for nature. That's a bizarre um, idea. And and this has been sort of a, an incredible change that we've we've seen, and one with huge consequences for the country. Uh, but we've had almost no public debate on it in some sense because the environmental slash homeowners groups have really sort of dominated public discourse in a in a way that's similar to the way that the health professionals have dominated in in the cigarette context. Yeah, and you raise a really um it's a fantastic observation, a really fascinating one. I you know, clearly it's sometime in America's past, uh maybe before nineteen fifty five, maybe before nineteen thirty five, maybe before nineteen hundred, the default political belief was government doesn't belong in our business in these ways, telling me what to eat, telling me what to uh how to spend my spare time, my leisure time. Uh and uh Kind of ironic, actually. We have much more uh, skepticism about government coercion of sexual activity today than we had in, in say, 1850. But we've reversed and, and given government. So the government, most people think government should stay out of the bedroom, but it's in the kitchen. Uh, <laughs> exactly. you know, government's crowded out of the bedroom and somehow wandered in over by the refrigerator to keep an eye on me. And it just, I, I guess my thought is, I, I tend to perhaps naively hope that we'll have a, re- a revision in constitutional beliefs that government should do X or Y, but it really is probably going to have to come from the culture. It's going to have to come from the, ph- the philosophy and, and norms that we believe in as, as Americans about the proper role of government, and I think we have a lot of work to do. Well, I think th- there is at least this great tradition of caring about liberty, which you know came to America in part through the, the fight with religious coercion and in part from the Scottish Enlightenment through Witherspoon to Madison that gave, you know, these, these wonderful sort of Scottish Enlightenment skepticism uh, about about government, which so you know infuses our constitution and is so much of a part of sort of traditional American political thinking. I think the strength of that tradition means that if there are enough sort of you know pro-liberty entrepreneurs out there, uh, you know, there's there's plenty to tap into. I think I think the battle is is by no means you know lost, and I think you know when you when you sort of make the case that you know freedom is really the most important thing, I think that really does resonate with most Americans. But you need to actually keep on making that case. I mean, you need to keep on emphasizing that you know when you when you're doing something to try and restrict people's you know choices or or try to you know let the government into people's minds to try and you know 
mess with their their decisions about about uh, ice cream. That that really is favoring the state over the individual. It really is actually going against the grain of America's you know 400 year tradition of, of liberty. And I think the important thing is that the entrepreneurs of liberty go out there and, and argue that even in cases that don't affect them personally, uh, but you know every time there's a restriction on on liberty, that's something to be uh, at least questioned. It's wonderfully said. My guest today has been Edward Glazer, the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor of Economics. Please visit econtalk.org, econtalk.org, for links to for links to this podcast, to comment on this podcast, and to find other podcasts on other topics. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening.